Welcome everybody to Drisha, um, to the second part of a six-part series on the laws of Kashrut and Jewish-Gentile relations by Dr. Stra Shana Strauch-Shik. Um, as you may remember from last week, Dr. Strauch-Shik is a fellow of the Center for Israel Studies at Yeshiva University and teaches Talmud and Halacha in Michalat Mevaser Yerushalayim and Matan in Israel and in the Drisha Summer Kolel. In 2011, she became the first woman to be awarded a PhD in Talmudic literature from Bernard Revel Graduate School at Yeshiva University, where she also completed an MA in Bible. She studied in the graduate program in advanced Talmud at Stern College and has held postdoctoral fellowships at Bar Ilan and Haifa University. Her upcoming book, Between Thought and Deed, Intention in Talmudic Jurisprudence, examines the role of intentionality in the development of Talmudic law and is being published by Brill. So without further ado, Dr. Strauch-Schick. Thank you so much, and uh, welcome back, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. And this week, we're going to continue our uh, study of the laws of Abishal Akum, food which was cooked and uh, prepared by a nun, a Jew. Um, so just to review a little bit, I'm going to share my screen. Um, last week, we saw that the Mishnah in Avodah Zarah 2.6 lists um, various foods which are prohibited to eat, not because they're not kosher per se, but rather because they were decreed to help uh, pre uh, prevent, it seems, either Jewish uh, Gentile relations or the fear that there may be something non-kosher mixed in um, without the knowledge of the Jew. Um, so the, the one we are looking at now is food cooked by a non-Jew. And we saw that Rashi gave two reasons for the prohibition. Either it's a social policy. If you fear if you eat their uh, food, you, you'll make come to eat together, then that'll ultimately lead to a larger social problem of intermarriage or a kashrut reason. You, they may add some non-kosher food and you'll be eating a, a treif. And we saw various um, a, a, a practical differences that arise from these two reasons. So then we uh, started to see some leniencies which were introduced with regard to this law. So we saw two different additions, either that any food that can be eaten raw, the prohibition does not apply to. So if you have a vegetable which can be eaten raw, or of course water that can be eaten raw, even if a non-Jew were to heat it up, you would be allowed to eat it or uh, drink it. Um, or any food that's not uh, fit to be uh, served at a king's uh, table, that would also not fall under the prohibition of a bishalakum if a non-Jew then were to uh, cook. And we saw that's a very subjective kind of uh, thing, which is, uh, it depends on the times. I, I read that the Star K calls the White House to see what foods they uh, serve. Now, uh, today we're going to see other leniencies which were applied to this prohibition. And we're going to see other times where a bishal akum does not apply, meaning that even if a non-Jew were to cook the food, it would be okay. So we've already seen that one, food that can be eaten raw, the prohibition of a bishal akum does not apply. Two, food that would not be served in a king's table, the food also does not apply. So today we are going to see more leniencies which were applied. So the first one we're going to look at is that if it's mixed with other uh, food and it's not the majority of the food, then it would also not fall under the prohibition of abishal akum. If the cooking occurs in the house of a Jew, we're going to see that was also a leniency which was applied. And hopefully we'll get to the last one, which is the most uh, well-known, I think, that if the Jew is involved in the cooking a process in some way that would also mitigate the problem of abishalakum. So let's get uh, at it. Now uh, I have a very ambitious list of uh, texts which I gave uh, to you. Um, I can't say we'll get through all of them, but we'll do our best. Um, so perhaps I will share my uh, screen. So for those of you who don't have it, can um, have access to them. It's very long. Can't say we're gonna to get to all them, but uh, we'll do what we can. Okay, so this is class two. Now we're gonna look at the leniencies of Abishal Akum. So the first one, as I just said, is where it's in a tarovit. Tarovit is, it's in a mixture. There's other foods. You have one food, you know, two foods which are cooked together, 
and only one of the foods which have a prohibition of abyssal akum um, and the other food and that and the food which abyssal akum would apply to is not most of the food being cooked. So um, the source for this is in a Talmudic a, a text, also in the Bavli, So let's read this together. Mar of Asi Mar Rav. So Rav Asi said the name of Rav, and Rav again is the, a prominent first generation a Babylonian Amora, Talmudic rabbi, he writes, who says, If you have small salted uh, fish, there's no problem of abishal akum in small salted uh, fish. And Rashi explains because because you can eat them the way they are. You don't have to uh, cook them. They can be eaten raw because of the salt that's been added uh, to them. And a uh, fish, by the way, is a whole um, area. And does the fact that we nowadays eat uh, fish raw in a sushi, make a fish a food that would be eaten raw. So it's a debate amongst the post game whether fish nowadays, even you know, bigger fish, would be accounted as a food can be eaten raw. And there's you know more than what we learn here. There's so much more that can be learned. So uh, you know, we're just you know not even scratching the uh, surface. So anyways, so the small uh, fish, since it has uh, salt added to it, that's a food that can be eaten raw. And therefore, if a non-Jew were to then uh, cook it, there'd be no problem of abishal akum. And Amar of Yosef, so Rav Yosef says, Im salam um, Okay, this then goes into other laws. Can you use it for your Erev Tafeshilin? Um, okay, and whether or not you can do that. So, um, so it says that, so if a non-Jew were to roast it, a Jew could use it for the Erev Tavshilin, you know, in between uh, Shabbat and uh, Chag. But if a non-Jew were to make this a, a dish out of this uh, fish, where you add a flour uh, to it, that would be a trafe. You would not be allowed to eat it if they made this a dish out of this salted uh, fish. So ask the Talmud, this is obvious. Of course you can't have this kind of a food that they make out of the salted fish. If they were to add flour, of course you're not allowed to eat this uh, fish. So says the Gemara, no, this is not obvious. Mahu detema, what might you have thought? Harsana ikar. Maybe you would have thought that the fish is the main ingredient of this uh, food. And since the fish has no problem of abishal akum, then maybe the whole uh, dish has no problem of abishal akum. But kamashmala, we learn from here that no, it's not the fish which was which is the primary ingredient, rather it's the uh, kemach. It's the flour which was the primary ingredient. And since the flour has a problem of abishal akum, so too the fish had this whole uh, fish a dish which which with the flour mixed into it, I mean, it's like a breaded kind of a uh, fish. The whole the whole food therefore has a problem of abishal akum. So meaning the shulchan arach sums up what this halacha, what the law being put uh, forth is. Eruv davar nechal chai im davar chai. If you mix together two uh, foods. One food can be eaten raw, and you mix it together with a food that you cannot eat raw. For example, fish with uh, flour. No one eats raw uh, flour. And then a non-Jew uh, uh, cooks it. You go by whatever the main in, uh, in ingredient is. If the main ingredient is the food that is able to be eaten raw, then this food may be eaten. It's not a problem of abishalakum. If, however, the main ingredient is a food which cannot be eaten raw, then, the, then this food does a constitute abishalakum and you would not be allowed to eat it. 
So we, we go by what's called the rule. Majority takes a precedent. Majority rules. That's a, that is a law we see, I mean, a principle we see in many areas of halacha. We always go by the robe, and here too, we go by the robe as well. If you have a food which can be eaten raw, mixed with a food that cannot be eaten raw, whichever food is the robe, whichever there is more of is the primary and ingredient, that's what you go by. So this has very a practical implications. This is why, for example, you're allowed to buy a cup of coffee at a McDonald's. Because even though there's a coffee, you can't eat that raw, and that's hosted by a non-Jew. But what is there more of, a coffee or a water? Since there's more water, the water is the primary ingredient, and water obviously can be can assumed raw, and therefore there's no problem of bishalakum. This also came up a lot with uh, beer. Beer was, you know, for much of the time, that was the, a primary a drink people would have. Water wasn't uh, generally uh, clean. They can drink water much of the time. So a beer was a very much consumed uh, drink. And since the uh, primary ingredient there is too water, that's why they're allowed to drink a beer, even if it's made by a non-Jew. Um, and, you know, just to hark back to uh, Halacha we saw last time, um, we saw last time, I just want to bring this back, that, uh, so, um, well, it's related to the next halacha and brought by the Shulchan Aruch and Sif Gimel. So a lot of, a very much can, uh, can assumed a dish during medieval times seemed to have been what we call a pareka, like a dough with either meat or a cheese mixed in with it. They eat that a lot, it seems. A lot of halacha deal with it. So it talks about a panda. It's called like in uh, like a, a Spanish, apparently it's called an in a pin, in a pin, impinata. So a panda she'afa oved kochavim. So you have this a dough with let's say meat inside. Now even though the a primary in in ingredient is the bread, as we're going to learn. There's a great leniency when it comes to the bread baked by a non-Jew. But nevertheless, writes the writes Rav Yosef Akairo, that even if you are makeal about the bread of a non-Jew, you are uh, still not allowed to eat it. Because there's like oil of the meat, which you can, it's very substantial. So it's there and you can uh, see it. And the meat has a problem of mishum bishule oved kochavim. So then that oil of the meat gets absorbed in the meat. Okay, now here, Rabbi Akiva Eger has a question based on what we just, based on what we just learned. He writes, wait, the oil gets absorbed in the, in the bread. Wait a minute. But there is, even if there's still oil there, there is a still less oil than there is the bread. So shouldn't the not shouldn't the oil be a batel be null next to the bread and we are lenient when it comes to the bread of a non-Jew? So he's really asking a question. He says, well, maybe because oil of meat is so substantial that uh, you know maybe that's why we are uh, strict here. But meaning he's saying really it should be okay because there's less oil of meat than there is the bread. So this just underscores this a point that we go by row, we go by whatever the uh, primary ingredient is, and uh, therefore when we are machmir, um, you know, attention is called uh, to that. So he says maybe since oil of meat is very significant, and you know, even if it's you know less than, e even though there's maybe less oil than there is meat, but since it's really there, it's bein, you can uh, see it. Uh, maybe that's why, you know, we are uh, strict in this uh, case. And another halacha we saw last time is if a non-Jew uh, cooks, you know, a, even a kosher food in a pot and that makes it a bishal akum. Remember we uh, saw that there's a machloket, there are two opinions as to whether your pot then reacquires a koshering. And does a bishal akum affect the pot or not? And we saw that some say the pot's fine. That was the opinion of the rush. You would not have to kosher the pot. And some say the Rashba says, no, you do have to uh, kosher the pot because once we say a bishal akum is not okay, it 
it, it becomes as if it's a, a tray for food which would affect the pot. But either way, says the shah here, but even according to the opinion that says you do have to akash for the pot, notes the shah, a, a commentator on the Shulchan Aruch, he says, nevertheless, im nevatzlab, but if you do and go use a pot that a non-Jew cooked in, meaning if you do, even according to the opinion that says that a bishul akum affects the pot and you would have to kosher the pot, if you did go in a cook in, in, in the pot without uh, koshering it, if there's more of your of the food you're uh, cooking now, then the taste of the abishal akum that uh, was absorbed into the walls of the pot, your food is uh, fine because again, rogue, there's more food that you're making now than there, than there is the uh, taste of the food that's been uh, absorbed into the walls of the pot. And uh, based on this uh, principle of abatel berov, we could be lenient um, and your food is a kosher. So even those who say you do have to uh, kosher the pot, after a bishul akum is made in this pot, if you did go and cook in the pot without uh, kashering it, it's okay. You may eat this uh, food because there's more of this food than the husser food that was that was in the walls of the pot. So this is a first leniency we're learning about uh, today. That if there's more non-abishul akum food than abishul akum food, then that's okay. So that's why, again, you can have a, a coffee made by a non-Jew because this, the, the a coffee beans that has a bishalakum, but there's less of that than the water. And water is no problem with a bishalakum, so therefore you're allowed to have a coffee in any resh, resh, uh, Okay, so that's our first leniency. If that if there's a ta'arobet, if it's there, it's a mix, ajar, and there's more non-abishalakum food than abishalakum food, you're good to go. Okay, that's our first one. The next one um, is a little more controversial because there are multiple opinions about it, but this is that there's an opinion which says that there's no abishal akum in food that was cooked in your home, in the house of a Jew. As I wrote here, Biveto shall Yisrael. Now this is a leniency that we don't find in the uh, Talmud. It's introduced during the medieval times, typically in medieval Ashkenaz. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that soon, why that would be. So this is introduced in Tosafot. And uh, Tosafot, as I think I mentioned last time, they were a group of rabbis who lived basically during the Crusades, during the 11th, the 12th and 13th centuries. Many of them are the grandsons of Rashi. Not, not all of them, but many of them are. So, um, um Dr. Stoudstick, we have a question yeah. in the chat. Oh, sure, um, sure. Daphna asked if this is a similar idea to Batel Bishishim. That is an excellent point, and that is another a principle. Um, so it's not exactly the same, and it's a question of like, well, why do we even need a Batel Bishishim? That's that's a, such a great a question, and it's kind of a huge, a big one. You know, it's a lum adisha question. There's a lot of uh, Torah on that a question. But batal be'ashishim is another hilchot kashrut a principle that if you have sixty times a treif uh, food, I mean mamish a treif. So that's I mean this isn't a treif uh, food. This is food which is a kosher in. Apparently, but Hazal made a decree on it. But Shishim says, even if you mix a treif, like a drop of milk uh, falls into meat. So that's basar halab. That's meat and milk. That's a treif min hator, or a piece of lard uh, falls into your food. But Shishim is saying, you know, that's okay. That does not make it a treif. But Rove would not work with you know, even if I have more, you know, meat than milk, you know, it's still busted by chalab. Even if I have more kosher food than the uh, pork that fell in my food, no, that's, you know, rove is not going to help that. Um, but there, you know, there's certainly a lot of a Torah on that uh, question. And, you know, what is a batal b'ashishim? So it's an excellent uh, question. Pichot akashrit 
it's that's part of what makes it such a hard area of halacha because it's very uh, circular. There's no beginning and end, and things kind of relate to each other. And you know, you, you know that makes it hard. You know, there's no you know you can everything relates, and so you have to know things that you speak. You still have to begin somewhere, so that you're going to pass uh, concepts that you haven't learned yet. But they you know all relate. So that's excellent uh, question. That relates to like a trafe. And this is an issue of, of you know, food, which is inherently uh, kosher, but it has a, a zera against eating it. Okay, so in the house of it, and, and then that was a great place to ask a question. There's not more questions. We will continue with our next uh, leniency when it comes to Abishalaku. So Atosvos writes, so this again, not in the Atama, this appears only in Atosvos and in the Shonim. Amar of Avram Berevi David, the Ravid. So the Ravid writes, Devadai Shlakot Asru Chachamim Keshoved Kochavim Mivashlam Beveto. When Chazal prohibited the food cooked by non that's only where the food is cooked in the house of a non Jew. But if the non-Jew were to cook the food in the house of a Jew, in Lachosh, there is no concern. There's no concern of intermarriage. And there's also no concern lest you they come to add non-kosher food, which that I get. It's in your own house. So, you know, there's no concern that they'll bring in non-kosher in, in ingredients or that they'll mix meat and milk together. Korean, you know, other uh, shonim uh, talk about this because you're there, you're walking around. Now, maybe you're not there in the kitchen at the same time that they're uh, cooking, but you may come in and out and the uh, fear that you might enter is enough to, you know, make someone not uh, mix non-kosher foods together. Um, before I get back to this, I just want to read then the next part of a toast, which says, but, so that's one view. The Ravid says, Abishal Akum only applies when the food was cooked in a non-Jew's home, but it never applied in the house of a Jew. But lo hoda lo Rabbeinu Tam. But Rabbeinu Tam, the Tosifist, Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Meir, who's the a grandson of Rashi, he disagrees. He says, no, devadai, kevan shavei kochavim mevashel, if the non-Jew cooks the food, it doesn't matter where the food was uh, uh, cooked. The same concerns apply irrespective of where the food was made. Whether it's made of a home of a Jew or the home of a non-Jew, Abishal Akum applies. And I mean, Rabbinatan He's kind of right. The Hazal never made such a distinction. Uh, uh, so, you know, there's no reason, says Rabbi Nutam, to say that this wouldn't apply if it were made in the house of a Jew versus the house of a non-Jew. Now, a little historical background here is in order, and as I promised, you know, I did say we would uh, uh, talk about the cultural uh, context in all these halakhan, especially here, that the reality of medieval Europe, especially medieval Ashkenaz, which is uh, Germany, is that slavery was a very uh, prevalent reality of the world at that time. Um, there were a lot of wars between Ottoman and Byzantine with the uh, Slavs, and there were a lot of, you know, a pagan uh, slaves are brought in, and the, the economy really relied on uh, slavery. And medieval uh, people, uh, Christian and Jews alike, did not see any theological a problem with owning another a person. And it was just a reality. The church owned uh, slaves, everyone owned slaves, even poor people owned slaves, and Jews were no uh, different than anyone else. And there is really an abundance of halachic literature from the medieval times about all the halachic ramifications about the fact that Jews had non-Jewish slaves or servants in their homes doing much of the household labor, whether cooking and Shabbos issues, 
who they would get rid of their uh, hamids to. Even there's a concern of doing a bidikat hamids. Would the Anju think they're engaged in some sort of magical uh, practice which would then cause uh, problems? There's concerns of uh, theft. So there's a lot of uh, talk about the fact that Jews owned uh, slaves both from a, a Jewish halachic literature as well as non-Jewish literature as well. There's a, a Christian a decrees and a charters which are talk about the problem of Jews owning specifically uh, Christian slaves and Christian servants and the church, or many in the church, uh, didn't like the, I, the I idea that a Jew would own a Christian and that a Jew who should be on the you know, lower realm of society would be on the upper rung over a, a Christian and many uh, slaves, even though they were originally a pagans, would often convert to uh, Christianity because they thought they can maybe become uh, free. And actually a charter was made that said, no, if someone baptizes, they can still remain in the uh, domain of a Jew. And the halachic literature also uh, uh, talks about if a Jew uh, forcibly converts their uh, slaves, you know, they're allowed to touch your wine and just all these halachot. Chaim Salavechik wrote, you know, a, a famous a book about wine production during the Middle Ages and the fact that just so many people owned slaves and there was so much work uh, uh, to be done making wine. All these halachot of allowing non-Jewish uh, slaves to make your wine and do all the various uh, processes to make wine. So slaves, non-Jewish servants were a regular reality specifically in medieval Ashkenaz. So there was just a very good a chance that the person preparing your food was not going to be a Jew. And so uh, therefore, you know, we can understand on one hand why perhaps a leniency would be made for maybe if it's in your home, um, that would be okay. But on the other hand, Rabbi Tom, in this case, is being true to the uh, Talmudic text, which is, well, it doesn't matter. It, this is never mentioned in the Talmud. There's no heter given for if it's made by a Jew or not. And this machlok between the Ravid and Rabbeinu Tam can continue throughout the later uh, sources as well. So in the Tor, the Arba Aturim, he writes both uh, sides. It says, Reverev Avraham haya matiram im bashlim kochavim Yisrael. Um, the uh, the rivet, he allowed food cooked by a non-Jew in the house of a Jew because lo because he thought both concerns do not apply. There's no fear of inter intermarriage and there's no fear that they may feed you on a kosher food. But Rabbeinu Tam but Rabbeinu Tam disagreed with that. and that is our uh, custom. Now, um, I should say that there, what, there is one, a text by the Or Zharua, who actually sees the machloket, the debate between the Ravid and Rabbeinu Tam as one of, as, or as a based on why Abishal Akum is a problem in the, in the first place. Meaning we read in the Atosphos that the Ravid holds that both reasons brought by Rashi don't apply in the home of a Jew, but uh, one, you know, one way to read it as maybe this is there that that this is the debate between the Ravid and Rabbeinu Tam, meaning what's the reason for Abishalakum? That the reason is lest they come to mix non kosher food, then yeah, that's not a kind of that's not a concern in the house of a Jew. But if the reason is it might lead to intermarriage, that could still apply even in the house of a Jew, and maybe Rabbeinu Tam thinks that's the reason. As the rivet thinks, no, it's less they come to feed you non kosher food as the other reason. So there is one opinion which sees that as the source of their dispute. Uh, clearly, that's not the view of the, the uh, toast, but as we have it. So the Ator uh, goes with Rabbeinu Atam. We do not rely on this leniency. The Adarche Moshe, which is authored by Rev Moshe Isserlis, who's the author of the Ramah, the Ashkenazi notes on the Shulchan Arach, he writes here, um, he cites the Hagot Share Adura Bishem Mahari, Bekama Mikomot Nohagim Lahatir, Lehaniach Shefachot Goyot Lebashel Ulitzlo Babayit. Says, even though the Torah says that the practice is like Rabbeinu uh, Tom to not allow for this leniency, other 
others say, well, actually, there are people who do rely on this, and they do let you eat the food made by your non-Jewish maid um, if, if it was cooked in your home. Um, even though the Jew had absolutely no a part in, you know, making the food whatsoever. So that the non-Jewish maid cooks the, all of the food. Now, if, now, how do we, how can we rely on this if Rabbeinu Tam was so against it? So he says, well, maybe we can rely on the fact that, you know, if it's in the house of a Jew, there's a, had had been a Jew who came and stoked the, uh, uh, coals. A Jew had a, you know, we can assume that a Jew had some apart, and maybe that's why we can rely on that. And what we can learn from here is that since we can say maybe a Jew took the coal or an arda, that would be adjust the heat, adjust the uh, dials, maybe that's adequate. And we're going to get to that in the next uh, leniency that we uh, talk about. Um, but anyway, the Ramah says, you know, people nevertheless rely on this. And they have their non-Jewish maids make their uh, food, even though the Jew didn't actually have any uh, part in it. Um, because maybe we can just uh, assume that a Jew was bound to have done uh, some aspect of it, even if it was just adjusting the uh, dial. And this, uh, these two abuse are brought down in the Shulchan Arach as well, and in the Ramah. So the Shulchan Aruch writes, um, the next source you have, Davar any food that can't be eaten. Ravagam olal shulchan melachem, and it is served on a king's uh, table, a lepako etapat, to accompany bread. Olapar aperet, am shevashlu oved kochavim, that a non-Jew cooked, afilu b'kliyisrael b'vei Israel, even if it's in the, the made in the, the pots of a Jew, and in the house of a Jew, says Rabbi Yosef Akairo, Hasser, this is prohibited. Nothing helps if the non-Jew cooked the food, as long as it, you know, it can't be eaten raw, and it can't go on a king's uh, table, and, uh, and of course there's more of that than other food, but it's usser, and the fact that it was made in the Jew's home will not help. Um... But then he goes on in Sivdal and writes that Yesh Mishamatir Bishvachot Shalanu. But some, there is an opinion which allows our servants. Yesh Misha Oser. But there's also one who says, no, it uh, does not help. Afilo Bidi Avad. So he brings both views. Some allow the non Jewish maid or uh, slave to make the food. Others say, no, it's never allowed. Even if they uh, cook it, you're not allowed to eat it. And the Ravid here writes, And we can rely on the lenient of you. Okay, if the food was already cooked by a non-Jew, says the Ramah, you can eat it. After the fact. And then the Ramah goes on. And Ramah writes, and not only can you be lenient after the, the fact if a regular non-Jew cooked the food, but you can even be lenient before the fact. You can allow in your own home servant to cook your food. If a servant is the one making the food in your own home, says Ramah, you can eat the food. Because it's impossible that someone didn't come and stir the fire or nor they adjust the knobs. So let me just uh, illustrate, <laughs> make it more clear what these two opinions are in a chart. <laughs> so if a non-Jew cooks in the house of a Jew, you see, this is any non-Jew. It's not talking about a slave uh, per se. The rivet was allowed this. And maybe because there's no fear of eating non-kosher food, 
Whereas Rabbeinu Tam says it would still be prohibited because maybe the reasons are still a fear of intermarriage. Now, moving um, into the, how the halacha uh, is uh, decided, the Hulchan went with Rabbeinu Tam. The non-Jew cooks the food, even in your own home, the food would still not be allowed. Whereas the Ramah says, you know, if after the fact the non already made the food, no, you shouldn't tell an Andrew to cook your food for you. But if they already did, you can eat it. Now, what about if it's a servant who makes the food? So the Shulchan says, some are machmir, some say it's not okay, some are lenient. The Ramah says, however, when it comes to a servant, you can be lenient when it's a servant who cooks in the house of a, of a, a Jew. Um, he allows this leniency, even um, going with the leniency of the rivid. Now, um, even within the leniency that the Shulchan Arach uh, uh, talks about, there are some who limit it to a specific kind of uh, servant, that it's not all, um, it's only perhaps a slave who's not a cooking of their own volition, but who has absolutely no uh, choice in the matter. A slave is entirely, you know, within the uh, will of the master. And a, and a slave is basically the, a property of the owner. So the slave, you know, basically is a doing the a total will of the owner and does not have their own will to speak of. Um, and this, uh, the Shach brings down this opinion um, of the, uh, the uh, arrived. So let me just go back and bring the screen share. So the Shach here um, writes, he brings, the, brings down the opinion, but I am this olive buffs, stands for Sefer Isser Vehetar Shamal Harshal, that he may be to Shuvat Haramban. He brings the opinion of Ramban, who is Nachmanides, who writes, that maybe a Akum only applies if the non-Jews are cooking of their own will. So therefore, if it's a slave who has no will of their own, because everything they do is based on the will of their owner, Maybe a bishalakum only in that case wouldn't apply. But if they're doing it from their own will, then there's a problem. So our servants and our slaves, they do whatever they do against their will. Because they are owned by their owner, because they have no will of their own, maybe it's only that case that the Shulchan Orach's, you know, Yesh Matirim would have been lenient about. Only in this case, Eim Bazekir of Hadad, only when it's a slave who has no will and is only a cooking in, uh, in uh, entirely based on the, you know, will of their own, or maybe only in that case is there no fear that it will lead to any kind of relationship. And only that would the Shulchan Orach be lenient about. Um, but then, so that's the view of Nachmanides. But then the Maharshal writes me, well, his, the Ramban still writes me, but nevertheless, this is not a clear, says the Ramban. Um, but we should, should not rely even on that. I don't know how Gim Isor Filu Bediabad writes the Ram Nachmanides that even a slave you should still not allow. Even that's a problem of Abishal Akum. So now the Shach explains, So some say that when the Shulchan Aruch was lenient, when he brought this, you know, maybe he was only referring to a slave. And he'd only be lenient in that, in that regard. And maybe, and then maybe when the Ramah also said that we can rely on it, maybe he too is only referring to a slave. But then the Shach says, but 
they but they never actually say that. But ultimately says the shach, since they never actually say that, you you don't have to limit the leniency to a slave. That's what the shach ultimately says. So while some may say that maybe the leniency of a servant, a cooking home of a Jew, would only apply to a slave who has no will of their own, since neither of Yosef Cairo in the Shulchan of the Beit Yosef nor Rav Moshe Ishlis in the Adarche Moshe or the Ramah made that explicit, there's no reason to limit it to a slave, and both of their leniencies would apply um, to uh, would apply even to uh, a non-slave uh, uh, servant. Um, so whether that is relied on l'chathila, um, you know, it seems there's certainly two views on the, the matter, but um, it's something which, you know, is taken into account at least some uh, times. Is there any uh, questions, on, or are there any uh, questions on this? Yeah, I have a, I have a question. Um, so does this look apply in restaurants if the idea is just that, like, um, let's say it's a Jewish-owned restaurant, but it's not necessarily kosher, and you'll have a Jew around there, so like maybe they'll mix the pot. Does that, if that's like the idea behind it? The, I mean, what goes on in a restaurant, um, you know, there's, that's not, you know, they usually rely on the Jew uh, turning on the oven as well. Now, and whether it's relying, you know, and whether it's relying on lechatila or only in a home, you know, that's a different a question. But it seems that most restaurants would rely on the next leniency we're going to look at. Um, and again, you know, this is not something that seems that most would rely on lechatila. And now, so just to review what we said. So if a non-Jew cooks in the house of a Jew, there was uh, one opinion which allows us by the rabid, Rabin Utam, still wasn't very, you know, did not feel this was a helpful akula. The Shulchan went with Rabin Utam. Ramah was more um, in, in a client to be lenient about this, uh, certainly the uh, Avad. Uh, throughout a person's house and realize, you know, that their non-Jewish worker made the food you know, you can eat it. Uh, don't worry. You, you don't have to ask them, well, did you uh, turn on the oven? You know, it's not your a problem. You, you know, you can rely on that food and eat it according to the Ramah. And he says, there are some who are even that you are allowed to have, you know, a non-Jewish uh, worker cook the food in your house. Now there is an opinion of the, and the Shulchanach brought down that some are lenient if it is uh, servant. Now, the Ramban would understand this to be limited to a slave, since a slave has no uh, say in the matter, and they can have to do whatever the owner uh, orders them to do. Um, but ultimately, says the Shach, since neither the Shulchan or the, or the Ramah brought that uh, qualification, there's no reason to limit it to that. Okay. Now the Ramam mentioned why, what's the root for allowing this leniency of a non-Jewish, of a non-Jewish person uh, cooking in your home? He wrote, because it's impossible that someone didn't come and uh, adjust the fire. This now leads to the last leniency we're going to look at um, and a very, um, uh, important one, which as uh, you know, someone just asked, is something which has relied on very much um, that the Jew has to be involved in the uh, cooking in some way. So we'll now go on to uh, the next set of uh, texts. So let's look on to the last group of texts and here's where things get long. So, uh, sorry, number three. If the Jew participates in the cooking a process. Now this has its a basis in the uh, uh, Talmud. So um, it's been a long one. So, you know, hopefully we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this whole thing uh, today. So it says in our same sugi, in Avodah Zarah Lamechet, Amar Rehuda Mar Shmuel. Rehuda said in the name of Shmuel. 
Hiniach Yisrael Basar Algabei Gechalim. A Jewish man leaves the meat on the uh, fire. He's making a, a, a barbecue. Puts meat on the grill. And then um, a non-Jew comes and, and uh, turns over the meat. Is that okay? Mutar, this food is allowed to be eaten. So ask the Gemara, well, what's the case here? If you would say that this food would have cooked even had the non-Jew not turned the food over, then obviously this food is okay. Like it was really cooked by the Jew and that a non-Jew didn't add in, in any meaningful way by a turning the, the meat over. Um, please. So rather, if it is if it's a case where had the non-Jew not turned the meat over, then the meat would not have uh, cooked. But then am I letter? But then why should this food be allowed? It, it was really cooked by the non-Jew. If this if this meat would have never been completed uh, cooking unless the non-Jew uh, turned it over, then it's really the non-Jew who uh, cooked the food and it should not be allowed. This should be a Bishel Akum. So answers like, Gemara, lo tzricha. No, so this is, we do need this case. So what's the case? It's a case where had the non-Jew not turned the meat over, it would have uh, taken two hours to uh, uh, cook. And now, since the non-Jew turned the meat over, it's only going to take one hour to uh, cook. So, what might you have thought? Maybe you would have thought that the fact that the non-Jews fed up the uh, cooking, maybe that is legally significant. Maybe the fact that had the non-Jew not cooked, you know, turned it over, it would have only would have taken two hours now that he turned it over, it's going to take one hour. Maybe that is as if he actually uh, cooked the food now. And maybe that should make it a bishalakum. So Kamash Milan, we, we learn from here that hastening the uh, cooking does not uh, constitute a new act or it was not legally sig significant to make this be a new act of a bishalakum. Um, now the Gemara uh, goes on. Well, wait a minute. So you just said if a non-Jew intercedes in the uh, cooking, there's no problem of a bishalakum. But we have another halacha brought in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, which says, Any food that reaches the minimal amount of uh, cooking, as long as it reaches that a point, then if a non-Jew then comes and, you know, intercedes in the uh, cooking, there's no problem of abishalakum. Now, some people may recall this term, machal ben derusai, food uh, that's uh, cooked to the amount that a certain group of uh, heaves would eat it. We find that term also in regard to hachot Shabbat as well. That's the uh, minimal amount that a food has to be uh, cooked in order to, uh, it, you allow it to leave it on the fire on a Shabbos and not be, not uh, violate further uh, cooking. So there's a lot of overlap between Hilchot Shabbat and the laws of a cooking and the a cooking regard to a Bishel Akum. So as long as the food has been minimally uh, cooked, if a non-Jew then comes and gets involved with the a cooking, there's no more problem of a Bishel Akum. But what does that then imply? That implies that had the food not been cooked to Macho Benjusai, then there will be a problem of Bishalakum, even if it would have cooked in uh, two hours, now it's only going to cook in one hour. I mean, we just said in the previous halacha that if a non Jew merely speeds up the uh, cooking, 
there's no problem of abishalakum. But here we see that's not the case, that the food has to be minimally cooked to malachal ben derusai in order for there to be no problem of abishalakum. Um, but meaning if it's not yet cooked to malachal ben derusai, then there would be a problem of abishalakum, even if they just hastened the uh, cooking uh, process. Um, so that seems to contradict. So a uh, solution is a given that Hatim going to Hilta, that it's a case that the a previous case is uh, where you put it in a basket. Um, sorry, you, you put it on an oven and it would have cooked without the non-Jew flipping it, but it would have just uh, taken longer. Um, that's so that's a uh, Shamuel's case. It was placed on an oven. In this case, the Rebbe Yochan is where you put it in Otsve Basilta when you put it in a bas get. So it wouldn't have cooked at all. Okay, so we are able to resolve it. That's the a point here. Um, so a non Jew being involved still does not automatically make it a problem of Abishal Akum. Okay, now we'll skip down a little bit. Atanya Namihachi. The next wide line, it's also taught in Abraita. If a Jew leaves meat on the fire, and, and a non-Jew comes along and flips the meat over, while the Jew is either at the shul or at the study hall, don't worry about it, it's fine. So a Jew left it on the fire, he then left the house to go to shul or, or to learn a little bit. And while he's out of the house, a non-Jew come and uh, flips the meat over, that's fine. So or if a woman, a Jewish woman leaves her pod on the stove, and then a non-Jewish woman comes along and stirs the food, while the, a Jewish woman is either at the bathhouse or the shul. And likewise, we don't have to fear. I just had to say, I love this uh, case because where's the a paradigm of a case where a woman would go to leave her house? Shul or a bathhouse. So A, we, we see from here, women clearly went to a shul. It's not even like a question here. It's just kind of the, a background of where she would go. And also shul and a bathhouse, those are kind of, what do those have to do with anything? So um, uh, this uh, a passage uh, came to me two years ago when I, when I uh, visited Hamat Tiberia in Israel, Tiberias, the agricultural area, the arc, not agricultural, the archaeological a park there on the ancient shul of Tiberia, where the rabbis of the nation and the Abraita lived, was right next to the hot uh, springs and the bathhouse that was built on it. So at least in Tiberia where many of the rabbis who were the authors of this bright would have lived, the shul was right next to the bathhouse. So I always wonder, maybe this bright was from Tiberia, it's possible. So anyways, if the, a Jewish man or woman leaves their food on the higher than then they leave their house, not for a very, very long time, but certainly more than two minutes. And Anandru can come along and either flip it over or stir the food and we're not concerned. Okay, now it asks another case, Ivailu. So we see that if the Jew leaves the food on and Anandru uh, turns it over, that's fine. But what about the opposite? What if What if it's a non-Jew who put the food on the fire and a Jew who uh, turned it over? Would that be okay? So Mar Nachim Bar Yitzchak says, Kal ve'chomer. We can uh, do you know, something more lenient from something more uh, strict. If it was okay when the non-Jew was the one who uh, flipped it over and thereby come, uh, pleaded it, all the more so if the Jew is the one who has uh, turned the food over, of course it should be fine. Okay, so it's fine whether it's the Jew who put the food on and the non-Jew uh, turns it over, or it's the non-Jew who put the food on and the Jew who uh, uh, turns it over, that's fine as well. And now it brings one final uh, a case here of a Jew being involved in the a process of making the food. Here, however, it's not food per se, but it seems to be more of 
well, we'll keep going. Um, and it says the same thing here. It brought a bright to which supports this. Now, um, and it says the same thing. Now let's just go out to the top of the next page. Amar Ravina. Hilchata, the halacha is ha rifta de shagar. If you have an oven, that's what Rashi says. Rifta de shagar is hesik vetanor. An oven that the fuel was uh, put in, oved kochavim. So a non Jew put the fuel in the oven, you know, put the, the logs and the fire. But a Yisrael, then a Jew uh, bakes it. Now, the fact that it's baked implies that we're talking about a bread here. So a non-Jew put the fuel in, and a, and then a Jew uh, baked in it. Inami, alternatively, shagar Yisrael, or it's the Jew who fueled the oven, and a non-Jew baked the bread. Inami, shagar or the non-Jew put the fuel in, and the Jew and and then the non-Jew put the bread in, the Atta Yisrael. And then what did the Jew come? Chata bachituye. And then the Jew just stoked the uh, coals. Shafir dami. That is a fine. So the question. So we see here a clearly when we're talking about Abishal Akum, if a Jew participates in the uh, cooking whether it's they put the food on the fire and the non-Jew uh, turns it over, or the non-Jew puts the food on the fire and the Jew uh, turns it over, that makes it not a problem of abishalakum. The question is, what about this last case of uh, doking the coals or adjusting the flame? Now, this case here is referring to uh, baking. Baking generally refers to a uh, bread. And the question we're going to see debated amongst the medieval rabbis is, is this a leniency of adjusting the flame, one that only applies to bread, to pot, hakum, the bread of an anju, or does it also apply to a bishalakum? So um, we'll have to leave that as a, a cliffhanger for next week. Um, so just to sum up what we did, done today. Now, can, can I share my screen now? Um, okay, I seem to not be able to share my uh, screen. So, so um, today we saw to review that um, any food that can be eaten raw or any food that can be um, not served on a king's uh, table, those have no problem of abishal akum. We also saw that if food, which would be a problem of abishal akum, is mixed with other uh, food, which would not have a problem of abishal akum, as long as the abishal akum food is not the robe, it's not the primary in ingredient, that would also not be a problem of abishal akum. We saw a way that if the food is a cooked in the house of a Jew, that a possibly there'd be no problem of abishal akum. Now, whether one can re rely on that, lechat hila, be a for the fact or bidiavad, that's a debate, but at least it, it, it is something there, at least bidiavad. And we also saw, at least preliminary, that if a Jew, definitely a Jew is involved in the cooking of the food, there's also no problem of abishal akum. So next time we'll see how much does the Jew have to do? How much in, 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 in involvement does the Jew have to have in order to mitigate the Bishal Akum a problem to then make it be not a Bishal Akum, but a Bishal Yisrael. And we'll see that is a debate amongst, once again, between Sepharadim and Ashkenazim. As we saw, Ashkenazim were more, uh, had the people who were lenient with regard to cooking in a Jew's home were from Ashkenaz. We'll see a same divide um, amongst how minimally does a Jew have to be involved as well with, once again, the rabbis of Ashkenaz being much, much more lenient than those of Sifarad. Um, so we will see that next time. So uh, thank you all very much. Apologize for the two minute break, but I guess I made up for by going five minutes. Away. And I look uh, forward to learning with everybody next week. So we'll continue this and start a pot album as well. Great, thank you, Dr. Shachik for this class. Um, looking forward to next week to continue. Thank you to everyone yes. that joins today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. 
Uh, Drisha's fall programming continues um, tonight at 8 p.m. with the second part of a class series by Rabbanit Leasarna on Kvod HaMate and Kvod HaBriot, the honor of the dead. In addition to these, there are many more classes happening now. Um, so you can find out more information and find the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes. So again, thank you everyone for coming today and we will see you soon.